this morning is Sunday, October 30th, 2005. Our message this morning is Wisdom and Understanding for the Nations. See your little subtitle down there is the Torah. The Torah being the first five books of the Bible, also translated and meaning the law. Uh, don't get too excited about the PowerPoint this morning. There's only two slides. I did the PowerPoint because there's some pictures that I want to show you that I couldn't figure out how to do it. Those of you that take notes, these are some of the scriptures that we're going to go over this morning, at least as I've planned it. Turn with me to Psalm 147. I'm going to read a popular scripture that I think is misunderstood. To get the Psalms, you take the middle of your Bible, and you should see Psalms in the middle of your Bible. Psalm 147, starting in about the 19th verse. He has, re- has revealed His Word to Jacob, His laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know His laws. Praise the Lord. Now, if you've heard this quoted before, and many of you may never have heard this quoted, the way that you tend to have heard this quoted is that Israel received the special revelation of God, wasn't given to anybody else, and we as Gentiles have no relationship to the law of Moses. Now, I'm going to talk to you this morning about a relationship that we do have to the law of Moses and a way that it's permeated our society. There are certain aspects of the Mosaic law that are pervasive throughout our society, and it's a good thing. You'll see that. The fact that he revealed his word to Jacob and his laws and his decrees to Israel, and he's done this for no other nation because they don't know his laws, doesn't mean that it wasn't to benefit other nations. It just means he picked a specific nation to be a conduit through which many good things would come. You're going to find out that the nation of Israel is typified by a man. The man's name was Jacob. He's the one who was changed from Jacob into Israel. His name literally changed at some point in his life. And it changed because he had an experience with God that left him with a new walk with God. That man and that nation, through type and shadow, teach us about Christianity. In Christianity, God has done something in your life that He didn't do for anybody else. It was unique. The things that He saved Steve from and for are totally different than the things that He saved Brad from and for. And He did that for Brad or did it for Steve and didn't do it for anybody else. And yet their lives are going to affect lots of people. The man Jacob received a special revelation from God that was passed down through his descendants. And he did that, and it was unique, and it was special, and it was just for Jacob, and it should be held up as something, wow, look what happened. But that doesn't mean it didn't benefit anybody else. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 7. I want to find out why this happened. Why did God pick you? Why did God reveal Himself to you? Why did God reveal Himself to the nation of Israel? Why did He give them His special law? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We're going to be in Deuteronomy 7. Starting in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be His people, His treasured possession. Now that applies to the nation of Israel, but you've heard it applied to you, haven't you? Peter uses language like this. The Jewish apostles use language like this. Say, hey man, Trevor, you are a special possession of God. You're His and belong to nobody else. You're a unique individual. You belong to the very body of Christ, right? But why is that? Why is it true of Trevor as an individual? Why is it true of Israel as a nation? By the way, it's only true for us Gentiles because we've been made co-heirs with these promises that were given to Israel. They're Israel's promises. But why is that true? The Lord did not set His affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He swore to your forefathers that He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful. He is the faithful God, keeping His covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love Him and keep His commands. But those who hate Him, He will repay to their face by destruction. He will show to be slow. He will not be slow to repay. 
to their face those who hate Him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands and decrees and laws I give you today. We keep going two more verses. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep His covenant of love with you as He swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and will increase your numbers. He will bless the fruit of your womb, the crops of your land, your grain, your new wine, your oil, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flock in the land that He swore to your forefathers to give you. You will be blessed more than any other people. He goes on to to share some more things. Why did He choose Israel? Did He choose Israel because they were the greatest nation on earth? No, He chose Israel for the same reason He chose you. Precisely because they didn't have it all together. Precisely because they were not the greatest nation on earth. Remember Paul writing to the Corinthian church says, Hey guys, not many of you were of noble birth. Not many of you were excellent when you were called. God didn't pick Christians because we had it all together. He picked us because we had a great need. Israel was picked for the very same reason. It's funny, when you put the title on a people, the chosen people, it could breed arrogance, couldn't it? I'm chosen and you're not. The fact that they were chosen means that they were chosen for a divine task. They were chosen as a special object of God's affection. And it was not because of anything that they did. They were just chosen. So is there anything to be arrogant about? Not at all. But that same arrogance has shown up in Gentile Christianity, hasn't it? You know? Don't, don't American Christians dance around like we own the earth? Like everything is ours and everybody ought to see everything the way that we do? And we have a monopoly on the gospel? The greatest, most powerful nation on earth? Anything that God gave us, He gave us because He gave it to us. Not because we're great. He likes to pick things that are ignoble and make them noble because it shows that He's God and that His power works through them. In Deuteronomy 4, we see the reason that He chose Israel. In Deuteronomy 4, we'll start in verse 5. See, I have taught you my decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. That was the title of the message today. Wisdom and understanding to the nations. Who will hear about all of these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I'm setting before you today? When God picked the nation of Israel to be His chosen nation, number one, Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, Genesis 18 says that He chose Abraham because He was confident that Abraham would teach his children what was right. Who was Abraham's son? Isaac. The promise went through Isaac. Abraham taught Isaac about God. He taught him the things that he learned. And then Isaac taught Jacob, and the nation began with Jacob's twelve sons. Deuteronomy 6 tells us to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and then impress these decrees, impress these righteous laws upon your children. Because if God was going to do something with a nation, it had to begin with the parents teaching their children. And the word for impress is literally like a seal that is put in hot wax. Impress it upon them. Force it into their very spirits if you can. That was the idea. And the reason that God did this, the reason that He picked Israel and gave them His laws, His righteousness, His character and didn't do that for any other nation, was because He wanted them to display the very character and wisdom of God. And I know, many of you will think right away, well, they failed, right? So anyway, Israel didn't do that. They didn't bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul said they simply stumbled, and that they didn't stumble beyond recovery. This is the point of Romans 11. Israel has not failed. Israel has not failed to accomplish their task anymore than you have. You remember I said there's a parallel between Christians and Israel? Between the man Jacob and us? Do your actions every day display the wisdom and understanding of God? Do people look at you and say, wow, Bobby, surely because of your behavior, God is with you. What other person, Steve, whatever person on earth 
has had God with him the way that God is with Steve or Bobby or Matthew or Brad. Now, there are instances in our life when people definitely see that, don't they? They'll see you under attack. They'll see you in famine, so to speak, and see that God is with you. And they'll see confidence. They'll see security. They'll see joy. And they'll say, man, that guy has to have God with him. And we live for those days. But there are certainly days where we don't see that, right? Well, God says that a day is as a thousand years to Him. So if you haven't seen the wisdom and understanding of God displayed in the nation of Israel today, given a few centuries, you may see it displayed. I will submit to you before this message is over that you will see God showing Himself holy through that nation even today, even as much as He is through His body of Christ. We'll get there. I want to read you another psalm, though. Psalm 67. You find out that this nation, this people, was intended to teach the world something. In Psalm 67, starting in the first couple verses, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face to shine upon us. You know, that's a Levitical blessing. You find that in the Word. Jews still pray this today. In fact, I can show you instances in the Bible where we know Jesus must have prayed it based on the setting and circumstances He was in. I can't help it. I do that a lot for people when I pray. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. What a beautiful thing. May you reflect the glory of God even in your face. May His light be upon you. That's what Christians are called to walk, but we weren't the first people to call to walk that. Jacob was. Israel was. And they were called to do this for a specific reason, so that people just like you might see it. And what's verse 2 say? that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Nations there is goyim. You know what goyim is? Gentiles. They translate it sometimes Gentiles, sometimes nations, depending on the context. God's desire in giving Israel the law, in giving His righteous character set down in a body of rules, was that the nations would look and marvel and go, oh my goodness, we've never seen a people on the face of the earth that have righteousness like this. Who's ever put together a body of laws like that? Who's ever had God at hand with them like that? So you see, as a nation, Israel had a calling that relates very much to your own calling. People are supposed to look at your life and go, My goodness, Judah, you're different than the other kids. You're peculiar. You don't rush into the evil that they do. You delight in God, and I see God with you. Now, it just so happens on an individual level, sometimes it's easier to see this than on a national level. And where a man's life is measured in decades and years, a nation's life is measured in thousands of years. Isn't it normal? In adolescence, we talked about this in baptism in the last few weeks. Isn't it normal in adolescence to have a strong commitment and then at some point during your teenage years and early 20s to drift out of that commitment, tempted by the nations of the world, if you will, only to return mature, and ready to walk in the ways of God with all of your heart? Isn't that what we did yesterday at a baptism, was acknowledge that that's exactly what one of our own church members has done, just as I did, just as my wife did? I tell you what, the nation of Israel began this thing with fervent fire and called of God and were unique among all the nations of the earth and something happened along the way. And they did. They profaned God's holy name. But that's not the end of the story. In our time, something has changed. And we'll read about that here in Ezekiel 36. Turn with me to Ezekiel. In the Thompson chain, you can reach Ezekiel 36 by going to page 961. Yeah, pass out some Bibles, Matthew. (laughs) Say, well, why on earth are you talking all of this Israel stuff, Eric? I'm talking all this Israel stuff because if you didn't know, the king that we serve is an Israeli. The king that we serve is a brown-skinned Jew. God chose to incarnate Himself in a first-century Judean. And He did that for a reason. Their very culture was intended to display the wisdom and understanding of God in a people. So when Jesus was incarnate in a human body, it was a Jewish body in a Jewish culture intended to display the wisdom and understanding of God for all the nations to see that they might learn God's ways. 
So do you think it's important that we learn their culture? Do you think it's important that we know their law? Or do we just relegate it as to something fulfilled and throw it off to the side? That would be very sad, wouldn't it? I tell you, the nations have picked up on this. You'll find the Mosaic Law everywhere you turn in this country and you just don't even realize it. We say, well, what do you do with all of these laws that say this, that, and the other? Well, I can show you what we've done with a lot of them. I will before this is over today. You cannot go to Washington, D.C. and walk away untouched by the Mosaic Law no matter how hard you try. People say, well, this nation is a Christian nation. No, it's not. never has been. We did not have a Mount Sinai experience where a leader of our nation stood and received the law directly from God. They say, well, it's a Jewish nation. No, it's not a Jewish nation either. They say, well, it's a nation founded on Judeo-Christian values. Judeo-Christian values should be the same thing. There's no difference between Jewish values and Christian values. At least there shouldn't be. should be no separation. People from one book, one continuous, unedited, unified Word of God. The values that are expressed in the book of Deuteronomy are completed in the New Testament. They're not abrogated. They're not set aside. This is one revelation of God from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. You can't tear out any book, not any part of any book. They all explain each other, in fact. The problem with that is in America, we're lazy. We have about a 30-second attention span. If I can't get your attention in the first three, four lines of a paragraph, you're not going to read the rest of the story. And most people... Most people just want to know, give me the minimum. And so understanding all 66 books is hard. Just tell me what I need to know out of the Gospels. Well, that's too hard. There's four of them. Just give me a track. Tell me three or four things to believe, and I'll be good to go. Sell me some fire insurance. Make me feel better about myself. God is much bigger than that. His revelation spans from the east to the west. And I tell you what, you can spend your whole life digging into it and never find the bottom. He says that for him, he likes to conceal the matter. And then you get to show yourself a king by asking for him to reveal it and searching it out. God has a method of identifying who is kingly on this earth, who should be a nation of priests, who should be a part of his holy royal nation. And it's those that will search the mysteries of the kingdom of God and ask him to reveal it. And then he does so delightfully. He's looking for the opportunity. You say, well... That's hard. Uh, I'm not that astutious. That's okay. Fishermen, whores, and tax collectors were among the first to receive this revelation. It does not require a Harvard MBA. It doesn't require for you to go to some theological institute. It just requires you to love the Lord and be willing to listen to what He has to say. To set aside your... Have you ever wondered why a prostitute, why a tax collector who were considered the dregs of the society could receive... From Jesus, true revelation. But theologians couldn't. There was an absence of pride in these people because they knew they were guilty. God does not pick people because they have it together. He picks people because they have a great need. These people knew of their need and so they were easily used by God. They weren't arguing with Him over theological points. He didn't have to conjugate verbs in six different tenses to explain the Scripture to them. He told them what it meant and they believed Him because it agreed with their spirit. That's all we're asking today. See if this agrees with your spirit. Let it get down inside of you. And then watch. You'll see it everywhere that you read. Where did I tell you all to go? Ezekiel? Ezekiel 36. Some would say, well, Israel failed as a nation. I'd argue, have you failed as a Christian because you blew it for a day? Of course not. God didn't give up on Israel any more than He's given up on you. We all know each other pretty well. You could point to... Areas of my life where I've blown it bigger than day and I could turn right around and point to yours. Where would the mercy be in that? Would that be like Jesus? Would that show God's character? Probably not. Why do we do that with nations? Why do you want to discard Israel? Because they didn't overwhelmingly receive Jesus among their Jewish leadership at the time. They had a purpose to serve and they are still serving it. And look what God's promise to them is. Starting in verse 20 of Ezekiel 36. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned My holy name. For it was said of them, These are the Lord's people. And yet they had to leave this land. I had concern for My holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. We're all real comfortable with that message. We like the New Testament passages where Jesus is rebuking a Sadducee and says, Hey, 
Your disciples go and make twice the sons of hell out of their converts. We like those kind of things. Or when Paul rebuking uh, a superior attitude among Jews in, in the Roman church says, uh, God's name's profaned among the Gentiles because of you. We like those things. Point to everything negative that Israel ever did. Forget about all of the positives. What if we applied that same standard to us? How would we like that? No, we talk about mercy. We talk about grace. We talk about grace so much that it gets a little greasy. You almost get confused and say that in Christ there's a license for immorality. Paul said, no, 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 no. You died to sin. That's what our baptism represented just the other day that we did. Somebody dying to sin and living to God. Well, this nation, this nation of Israel, will one day thoroughly be aware of their sin and their need to shed the old man and walk in the newness of light. Watch what he said. They profaned his name among the nations. And why did it be profaned, by the way? Because God made promises to that nation that everybody knew about and it didn't look like they were coming about. What was the biggest promise God made to that nation? What's the one everybody knows about? It's in every movie you've ever seen about Israel. Come on, y'all talk to me. I'll just cry like a little girl and run out of here. I'm going to take you into the land of milk and honey. Right? That's what everybody knows is that Israel was called out of Egypt to go and inherit the land. So what do you do when they're not in the land? For nearly 2,000 years, they were not in the land. You know what? People's theology changed during that time period. People began to talk about why Israel had been replaced by the church. Why the promises of Israel no longer applied. Why the church had usurped all of those promises. People began to rewrite their theology. You know why? Because their theology didn't match what their eyes were seeing. So they changed their theology. Let me ask you something. Are we a people that walk by sight? No. We trust God regardless of what our eyes see. And we found out our eyes were wrong, didn't we? Because May 14, 1948, whoever heard of such a thing? A nation became a nation in a single day. All of a sudden, all of the promises to Israel were possible again, although it hadn't for some 1,800 years been possible. 1,900 years. I bet you'd be embarrassed if you threw away books, if you changed your theology and wrote new commentaries that said Israel was gone, never to return. You know what they did instead? You know what the very people that said the promises to Israel were no longer applicable did when Israel became a nation? They said, oh, well, they say that nation's Israel, and it's in the same land, and it's made up of Jewish people, but it's not the Israel God was talking about. Why? Why is it not? It's called Israel. It's made up of Jewish people. It's in the same land, so why is it not the Israel that the Bible's talking about? Because it doesn't agree with their theology. That's called data denial. You ever had somebody say... Steve, you've been late to work three times this week. No, I haven't. Steve, here's your punch card. It says you were late on Monday, you were late on Wednesday, and you were late on Friday. No, no, I wasn't. Well, you need to explain to me why does the punch card say that? I don't know. It just doesn't. You ever had a conversation with somebody like that and you want to go, Hello? You, you, uh, you, this is called data denial. Well, you can say, Israel, the promises don't, don't apply anymore. I want you to hear some of these promises. We will see them and are seeing them happen in our lifetime. Verse 22, Therefore say, say to the house of Israel, This is what the Sovereign Lord says, It is not for your sake, O Israel, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. You need to remember something. You can be talking to a Jewish person who is somewhat difficult and maybe you don't get along. And it's hard to see how on earth is God using this guy. You know, he's mean. He, he doesn't want anything to do with me. You know, I'm trying to share the love of Jesus with him and he doesn't want anything to do with me. He's got a chip on his shoulders, got a victim mentality, whatever it is that you might say. God's not doing any of this for an individual. He's doing it for the sake of his great name. The same way when some of you look at each other or look at me and you think, God, how could God use Matthew? How on earth could God use David? How is that working? He's doing it for His great name's sake. And the more you need Him, the more He's able to show Himself holy through you. Because everybody knows it's not you. He's doing the same thing with this nation. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of My holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. 
I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. What did we read out of Deuteronomy? What was the law designed to do? The law was designed to show the wisdom and understanding of the nation of Israel before all of the nations that they would say, what other nation has their God so close to them? What other nation has such a righteous body of decrees as this? Deuteronomy 4 said that that's what the law was for. That's why He gave it to them. Then we read in the Psalms that they wanted God's light to shine on them so that all the nations of the world would see the ways of God. Isn't these the prayers of a Christian? I mean, isn't this the promise that we've inherited? Isn't this our heart? We want our lifestyle to cause people to want to see that God is with us, to, to look and want what we have. The Scripture tells us to be prepared to give an answer to anyone that might ask what the reason for our hope is, implying that something about your life would make people want to ask. Right? Israel had the same hope. In fact, we're one and the same people. They're just natural descendants and we're not. We got grafted into something that's intended for them. It didn't replace them. They're natural olive branches. You, contrary to nature, are a wild olive shoot grafted into the natural vine. I will show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I'll take you out of the goyim, out of the Gentiles. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. Now, I tell you, people said this promise couldn't happen or that it referred to something earlier because it didn't look like it was happening in those theologians' days, in their lifetimes. From 70 A.D., Israel gradually began to get dispersed. By the time the Bar Kokhba rebellion had occurred, Rome crushed Israel with such power in the 130s and 140s that Israel just began to disperse slowly. There's always been a remnant in the land, but they were... Uh, scattered among the Gentile nations. And it looked like the promises of God would never come about. In fact, the name Palestine was to emphasize that. Because the Romans were in power and they wanted to emphasize that the promise to Israel would never come about, they renamed the place Palestine after the old Philistine enemies of Israel. They did that specifically to insult the Jewish people. That it wasn't called Israel, was not the land of promise. Those promises would never happen. It's interesting that that spirit took over the church, isn't it? Well, we'll cover that some other time, but isn't that interesting? And it looked like that was correct. 1000 AD rolled around, promises still haven't come about. 1500, oh, there's a great Reformation, Protestants are happy. Uh, but so what? What about Israel? The promises that were given to Israel are the very foundation of our faith. And they hadn't happened in 1500 A.D. So as Protestants began to write books, they often excluded the promises to Israel because it didn't look like it could happen. They hadn't been a nation for 1430 years. But in May 14, 1948, they became a nation again. What a historic day. How has this escaped our notice? You know what was prophesied about? The minor prophet said it would happen and happen in a single day. How's that escaped our notice? Now God's promising to bring all of Israel back from all of the countries that they were scattered into. Is that happening? From 1948 till now, Israel's population has gone from a couple hundred thousand Jews to six million Jews. Isn't that interesting? In the years from 1990 to 2000, just from the former Soviet Union, 1.2 million Jews returned. This didn't happen in any other day. This has never happened in history. The largest airlift in human history did not occur in wartime. The largest airlift in human history was transporting Jews from former Ethiopia and from, I'm not, not former Ethiopia, present-day Ethiopia and the surrounding areas back to Israel. The largest number of people that had ever been in the air above this planet at one time were Jews being transported, as Isaiah said, on the shoulders of Gentiles. Isaiah said that there would be a day coming when Gentiles would carry the Jews back to their nation and do it with singing. The largest airlift in the world's history was bringing Jews on the wings of Gentiles back to their nation. 
God's promises are being fulfilled before our very eyes. One of the slogans of a Jewish-centered ministry is, why read about prophecy when you can live it? Come to Israel. In the cities where they promised they would be rebuilt, they're rebuilt. In the places where it was said, you again will have daughters married in your streets. They can look out of their windows and see people being married. This was not possible for almost 2,000 years and it's happening. God's promises to Israel have not failed. Why is that good news to you as a Gentile? Because if they didn't fail for Israel, they won't fail for you. Your promises from God are dependent upon them being fulfilled for Israel. You are a graft in. You're a co-heir. That's not what our message is about today, though. It's about God's great name, His wisdom and His understanding being displayed among the nations through the law. Let me keep reading that. And bring you back into your own land. Here's verse 25. This is an important one. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. There is a day coming when the entire nation of Israel will be saved. They'll be clean. Paul said it. I believe it. The prophet said it. And I believe it. He said, but how? When? Where? I don't know. I know that the shadow and type throughout all of the Old Testament was that the nation had their sin atoned for in a single day. And then I see something in Zechariah where they're looking upon the one they pierced. And it looks to me like their sins are being atoned for in a single day. But we'll teach that another time. Verse 26 is an important one. I bet you thought you got the Holy Spirit to speak in other tongues or to prophesy or to give you a warm, fuzzy feeling. Look why he said he gave the nation of Israel the Holy Spirit or would give them the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you to move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanliness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of the famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. He goes on and on and on. He gets to weddings and all kinds of things. Why did He say He gave them the Holy Spirit or would give them? To move them to keep the decrees and laws. Well, why is that important? Because Israel was always called to be a nation that had direct revelation from God and the nations around them went, wow, when has there ever been a nation like that who has God with them like that? When has there ever been a nation with such righteous decrees? Now, in general... The Jewish nation is not esteemed among the nations of the world, is it? Man, you go to a UN conference, watch one on C-SPAN sometimes. The nations of the world hate Israel. You remember I said there's a parallel between the nation of Israel and Christianity? Have you ever wondered why a guy can not want to hurt anybody? Not say anything mean to anybody? Genuinely want to love, care for, pray for everybody on a job, but be picked on incessantly? Let there be a Christian on a big construction site and there's a general tendency to want to ostracize that guy. Something about him people don't like. The spirit in him is offensive to them. Makes them feel guilty about the way they are. Israel is that among the nations. Of course the other nations don't like them. They're chosen by God. They've been given special revelation by God. They're favored by God. No matter how hard you step on them, God causes them to prosper. The nations of the world don't like Israel. But you see Israel's influence, God's influence through Israel, all throughout our society. Anybody recognize this? What's murder in the first degree? Now, you guys that watch court TV all of the time, there are several types of first degree murder. All of them are in this legal code that's put on the screen. But here's the layman's definition. The first definition of first degree murder is causing death of another person with either the intent or knowledge that the conduct will cause death with premeditation. Premeditation is often described as malice aforethought. Isn't that an interesting concept? Boy, surely one of our founding fathers came up with that, right? Thomas Jefferson, in all of his wisdom, must have come up with that. 
Maybe it was Benjamin Franklin. No? No, I wonder where does that phrase come from? Well, you can find it in Numbers 35, verse 20. You can find it in Deuteronomy 4, 42, Deuteronomy 19, 4, Deuteronomy 19, 6, and Joshua 20, verse 5. And in every case, it's used in the exact same way that our legal code uses it today. Trying to determine whether or not somebody intended for death to result from their actions. Because that's what the Bible calls a murderer. It's when you intended to kill somebody. Now, Eric, why is that important? The nations of the world saw this body of laws given to Israel and said, that is righteous. That's wise. We want to adopt that practice. In fact, this is why when you go to Washington, D.C., you see pictures of Moses, statues of Moses. In the Supreme Court, this is why you see Moses pictured. It's not because people were Jewish or they were Christian. It's because as Goyim, Gentiles of the world, we looked and saw wisdom and understanding being displayed in this body of laws. And we said, wow, we want that. And now we've reached a day where we'd like to divorce it from its normal source because we don't like where it came from. What do you call it when somebody likes the benefits of a thing but does not like the thing? I call that hypocrisy. That's what I call it. Carnal church is doing the same thing, though. Running around, I'm blessed, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. Let's all be blessed. All they want are the blessings of Christianity. But suffering? Oh, no. No, no. Good doctrine? No, no, won't have it. Turning the other cheek? Serving one another? No, won't have it. Just give me good music, fancy lights, and bless me. Isn't that the same kind of hypocrisy? There's not a thing in the world that Israel's ever done that the church has not done ten times worse. How about this one? Any of these logos look familiar to you? The influence of the law in the medical community couldn't be more pervasive. Now, I just put a few on the screen. You do a Yahoo image search. Be careful doing image searches, by the way. That, that'll ruin your Sunday morning. But you do a Yahoo image search, and you find hundreds of these. Over in the top left-hand corner, Home Medical Library, the American Medical Association. What is that in that circle up there? Y'all call it out. What is that? It's a serpent around a pole. What is this uh, under the American Pediatric Medical Association? What do we have there? A serpent on a pole. Over here, this is the Blue Cross. You see it in two places. What is that? We have a serpent on a pole on a shield. Say, so what on earth is all that? Are these medical communities just into snakes? They must be from the Appalachian Mountains and like to snake handle, right? Well, what is this one over here, this Blue Cross? What is that in the center over there? Huh? There's a human being on a cross in one of the largest medical providers in our nation. Wow. wonder why we don't see that every day. Isn't that interesting? So, throughout the medical community, throughout the legal community, if you look hard, you see things. But where did that come from? Where is that? Let's go to the Scripture. We are... Uh, going to read something out of 1 Corinthians 10, and then I'll go to Numbers 21 and show you that serpent on a pole. In 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to find out that these laws were written down for a purpose. If you look hard everywhere you look in our society, you will see the righteousness of God displayed in, by displaying the Mosaic law. I have found out that Jesus lived the law perfectly as a display of God's righteous character. So when you're reading the Torah, you could say, I'm reading a novel about God's righteous character. But when you're looking at Jesus, it would be like the major motion picture based upon the novel. His life displays in a fuller, more vibrant sense, in a way that is inescapable, the righteousness, righteousness of God. So that the nations of the world would look and go, wow, when has there ever been a, a nation or a person who had the wisdom and understanding of God like this. This is what caused Jesus to be esteemed, was the way that He kept the Mosaic Law. Go in Corinthians 10. Page 1273. Verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud. Forefathers are Israelites, by the way. That they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. 
For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Boy, that's a warning. I want to tell you something. If the nation of Israel, who literally were declared in a legal sense to be adopted by God, most of them He was not pleased with. You're going to tell me that simply by attending church on a Sunday, that's something that's just pleasing to God? Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. It's not enough to wear the name Christian. If the lifestyle does not match the title, you are in trouble. You need to know that. You are in serious, serious trouble. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Did Israel have some problems? (laughs) You betcha. And their lives were examples. For who? For the goyim, the Gentile nations of the world, to look and see about the character of God. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by what? Snakes. Snakes. What's he referring to? Boy, if you have no grounding in the Tanakh, the Old Testament, if you have no idea about the Torah, then the New Testament can't possibly make any sense. Earlier in this book, he quotes the law. He quotes the law about an oxen in eating grain, not muzzling an oxen while he's trading out the grain. None of us would know that if it weren't quoted in the New Testament in three places. Would you have known that? If somebody said, you know, the law references an oxen, would you have been able to spit that out? Be honest. How long have you been a Christian? Is it possible that we've ignored some things in the Old Testament that were meant to show the wisdom and understanding of God to the nations? Sure, it's possible. We're all guilty of it. We're changing it. You know, it's not, it's not a bad thing to find out you have a deficiency. It shows you how to improve. It's a bad thing to intentionally decide to remain deficient out of laziness and apathy. Or worse yet, stubborn arrogance. It doesn't match your theology. Shame on people for that. Why not just go rewrite all your theology books? Or you'll be embarrassed when God pulls off the miracle that He's been promising that you wrote out. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by a destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. We don't need to go on and read that. We're going to go on to Numbers. I want you to get this. The things that happened to the nation of Israel, even them profaning God's name among the nations, were written down as an example for you. One thing that ought to come through loud and clear after doing an Old Testament survey is God is merciful. But you know, that's not what you hear associated with the Old Testament, is it? What one singular word do you usually think of in relation to the Old Testament? Judgment. Oh, the God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment. The God of the New Testament is a God of grace. That is entirely false. You know what, what's caused that perception? A New Testament church that has no understanding of the Old Testament. There is mercy and grace throughout the Old Testament. In fact, when you consider the time spans, He shows Himself to be much more merciful. Ask Ananias and Sapphira one day. You know, they didn't have hundreds of years to change their behavior. They got asked the question twice. Answered it wrong twice, they both dropped dead. It's the same God. It's the same revelation of God. We need to learn from it all. You in Numbers 21? You remember I told you the legal profession had uh, quotes from the Mosaic Law throughout it. It helped form the basis of our legal society. Then I showed you the medical community. Even the logos and emblems displayed some influence from the Mosaic Law. Why on earth would all of these people that have to do with healing the body, all of these people that are in a medical-based community, Lord, even the veterinarians, I didn't put it up there, but even the veterinarians have a rod with a snake on it and a big V, right? I think, what on earth is that? It took me a while to get us. Oh, the V's for veterinarians, you know? 
I think it's a blatant misunderstanding of the Scripture we're going to read, but everybody in the medical community has tied themselves to a symbol. Where did the symbol come from? It came from the Mosaic Law. It came from the Torah. They don't know it always. Maybe their ancestors did. Something in the law caught people's attention as wise and understanding and displaying that God was with His people. Let's see what it was. Numbers 21, starting in verse 4. Let me tell you what's happened. Israel has just destroyed Arad, a Canaanite king. They just totally whipped him. Right? No problem. And right after a great victory, now we're going to pick up with some grumbling. Do you remember Corinthians 10 said that these things were written down as an example and he mentioned people being destroyed by a snake? The New Testament specifically refers to this in the Torah as an example for you to learn from. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses. If I preach too long this morning, you might not speak against God, but you might speak against me, huh? (laughs) I hope not. And said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. This makes me want to cry. We detest this miserable food. You know what they're calling miserable food? Now, this is a people that has been walking with God for some time. He's been providing. They cried out for meat and He gave them so much meat it came out of their nose. They cried out for water and God caused a rock that it was said to follow them. Now, I have no idea how that worked. I just know the Scripture says it. Followed them in the desert. <laughs> you know? All right, Matt, let's get to camp. Let's pack up everything. Judah, you grab the altar. Look, the rock's following us. I have no idea. But somehow or another, there was always a rock that gushed water for them when they needed it. And they said that they hated the miserable food. you know what the miserable food was? It was manna. Keep your finger here. I want to read you something about this manna. This is Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're going to go to Deuteronomy 8. I want to see if you recognize these words. Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you, to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Where have you heard that before? Jesus was tempted. He was tempted to do something that was against God's will out of hunger. And how did He respond? He hit the devil right between the eyes with Deuteronomy 8. He said, man doesn't live on bread alone. He lives on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. These are written down as examples for us. What we're fixing to read about, what we are going to read about, still trying to get rid of that vocabulary. Uh, Can't help it. South Louisiana. What, what he's teaching about is an opportunity where they are upset because they're hungry and they've been eating the same thing. And God was trying to teach them, you don't, your life is not just about what you eat. It's about every word that proceeds from my mouth. Jesus understood that principle perfect. That's why the devil had no foothold on him. Had Esau understood it. Anybody remember who Esau is? He sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. If Esau had understood, if he had understood what he was really doing, he never would have sold it for beans. His hunger overpowered. What this was supposed to be teaching us, what the law was designed to teach us, was to crave spiritual things with an intensity that goes way beyond natural things. Why do you think Jesus was feeding 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 people at a time? Why does He turn and ask one of His disciples, where are we going to get food for all of these people when He already knows what He's going to do? He's trying to teach them something about spiritual hunger. These chapters in John are so misunderstood that we have a national church. It's not really a church. It's an organization. They even got a seat in the UN and they literally think that they are feeding Jesus to people through food. That's the exact opposite of what this was trying to teach. Jesus was the Word of God. He's what you're supposed to hunger for. 
Not his flesh. That's ridiculous. That's another message. Y'all back to Numbers 21. It's a good way to control the people though. If I'm the only one that can feed you the Jesus pill for salvation, you better do what I say, huh? I got a minute, I'll tell you a story. Happened, true story, in the Reformation time period. It got printed and sent all around the world and it really bothered people. You know, Revelation's one of those things that when you see it, it's black and white to you. But until you see it, you just don't see it. All right? Doesn't make anybody stupid, it just means you don't see it. A priest comes by and says, uh, Widow so and so, husband, still cooking away in purgatory. I'm going to need these three rows of corn to continue to pray for him. She goes, Well, Priest, we've been doing this for 20 years now. I mean, is he almost out of purgatory? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's, he's just got one leg left in, in purgatory. But those three rows of corn, that'll, that'll provide enough time for us to pray and for us to minister and get him out of purgatory. She goes, well, which leg was it? The priest is kind of confused. He says, I don't know. It's the right leg. Why? She goes, oh, I am so glad. That was a false leg. It was wooden. So I don't have to give you the corn. You know, This was just a way to manipulate people. And wicked men have always used the things of God as fishing for funds. A, a, a chance to turn the gospel of God into something that is a scheme for money and control. It should never have been that way. I don't want it to be that way. We're going to learn. They spoke against Moses and against God, or against God and Moses, and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many of the Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Uh Uh-oh. Make a snake and put it on a pole. I guess somebody in the veterinary society, somebody in the American Medical Association, somebody in the sleep studies for America, somebody in all of those places must have been reading numbers, right? No, probably not. But the stories of the wisdom of God and the understanding of God's righteousness have been passed out even to the Gentile nations as a result of what Israel received. Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, it lived. Why do you think the blue cross has put in their logo a a stick with a snake on it? Why is this a sign in the medical community, even in America, who never received the Mosaic Law? Because the nations heard about the wisdom and glory of God. They saw a nation that had God with them like no other people on earth. And we emulate it even in our society. So, well, what on earth is intrinsically healing about a snake on a pole? I mean, you be honest with me. Do you think if we put a snake on a pole in here and you were bitten by snakes, you could look at it and live? Probably not. Probably not. Uh, looking at the Blue Cross logo, did you get healed right away? Uh, the American Sleep Studies, I love theirs particularly. They found a way to merge the yin-yang with, yeah, with a snake on a pole. Hey, you talk about two opposites. You know? Their logo is a yin-yang within a yin-yang, but that's a whole other point. So what is it? Why, what is God trying to teach them? Well, this one of the reasons I love the New Testament. The New Testament teaches us much of what the Old Testament was trying to teach us. In other words, those of us that were too dense to get it in the first 39 books can read the second 27 books, and it's like a commentary. It doesn't contradict. It's like a commentary. Well, let's look at some places that the New Testament references this event. Uh, we can start in John 3.1. You're with me? You're not giving up on me already, huh? All right. God had always intended that His righteous decrees, His laws, would give the nations wisdom and understanding. That they would see Him in it. His character was revealed in it. Who He was. Why did these snakes come? Result of sin. They grumbled against God and sin started to ravage the people like snakes tearing them up. What was the solution for the sin problem? They had to face something. Let me read you a little encounter with Jesus and a man named Nicodemus. Starting in verse 
10. What's happened is Nicodemus has come and asked Jesus some questions. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were not far off. You know, Pharisees have... That word's become something in the English language that basically means a hypocrite. And nothing could be further from the truth. We know of quite a few Pharisees that were actually born again and received Jesus, even though they were among the religious aristocracy. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee who received Jesus. Nicodemus, church history tells us, received Jesus and he was a Pharisee. There was one very important Pharisee until the day he died that received Jesus. Anybody know his name? Paul. Saul, Paulus of Tarsus. Did you know that the Bible says not he was a Pharisee, but he is a Pharisee in the present tense? That's interesting, isn't it? In Acts 15, there were believers there at this council. Now, granted, they weren't on the right side of the coin, but they were believers and they were there. And it said that they belonged to the party of the Pharisees. We thought all that ended with Jesus, didn't we? No. The Pharisees were a political and a religious sect in Jesus' day that had some things right and some things wrong. There are Democrats in this audience today. Some things in the Democratic Party are right, noble, and excellent, and some are garbage and trash. There are Republicans in this party, in this group today. Some of the things that the Republicans teach are great, and some are total trash. When you became a Christian, did it mean that you lost all political leanings? No. Now, what if your nation's political parties were derived from a religious nature? Of course people stayed Pharisees or Sadducees. I don't know if there was an independent. I know there were, you know, guys that lived out in the desert called Essenes <laughs> that didn't much like either party. <laughs> you know, I guess they were the Nader community. I don't, uh, you know, I don't know. All right, we're in verse 10. A Pharisee comes and he's had a discussion with Jesus and is kind of confused and Jesus is really putting him in his place. Verse 10. You are Israel's teacher. This is said with some degree of sarcasm, by the way. Said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we've seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. You need to understand the setting. In the theological world, they call this homiletics. In this compacted center, not compact center, but compacted center, we're just going to call it the setting. (laughs) What Jesus is doing is talking to a man who is very familiar with the law and a culture that is familiar with this law. And he's politely inferring you're being ravaged by sin, just as if snakes were biting you right now. But I will be lifted up as a righteous standard, although identified with sin. And if you'll look to me, you can escape the condemnation, not that is coming. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He said, it already stood condemned. The problem in Israel is they saw themselves as righteous because they had received the law. Receiving the law makes no one righteous. Performing the law was a sign of righteousness. Trusting in God was a sign of righteousness. What is the problem in Christianity today? People believe that because they have received the good news... They are righteous. We're all right with God. We wear the title Christian. We've got a little gold chain with a cross on it. We were baptized. We're good to go. Receiving the good news never made anybody righteous. Performing the good news. Living like a Christian. Showing that you trust God by your actions is what declares you to be righteous. So what's the deal with the pole and the the snake? What God was trying to get Israel to do was He took a bronze pole which was symbolic of judgment and He put it in the center of the camp. Then He took this ravaging of sin, this snake that was a symbol of the ravaging of sin, and He put it on a pole for everybody to see. If when you are bitten and you see sin's effects in your life, you will turn and you will look at this symbol of sin lifted up everywhere and acknowledge what you've done, then you can be healed. 
If you will show trust and faith in doing this, you can be healed. Well, Jesus said He would be lifted up in that very same way. In John 12, 31, He referred to it again, but it's really explained very well in a letter to the Corinthians. So we're going to read that and we'll close there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Y'all, turn with me. I might lie to you if you don't read along with me. Flip, 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 flip. 2 Corinthians 5 is on page 1285 in the Thompson chain. Those of you that have not read that paper, Law Dog, I hope you'll get the opportunity to. I'll post it on the Internet once I get it edited. But I cover very many of these topics. And I cover them from the standpoint of bringing the law into its proper focus. There's a way that we're supposed to look at this. Not as a system of righteousness, but as a righteous way to live as we trust God to be declared righteous. You may not have the same relationship to the law that Nicodemus did or that a Jew has, you being a Gentile, but you can certainly look at it, marvel at it, and see that it shows wisdom and understanding and righteousness. You may choose to abide by principles because they're righteous, whether they were given to you as a legal system or not. In fact, everything in it teaches us something about the character of God, which is why Jesus kept it perfectly. Think about that snake lifted on the pole here for a moment. And we're going to start in verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We therefore, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. What happened is Jesus never did anything worthy of being bitten by a snake. He never was ravaged by the power of sin. He lived perfectly. There was no penalty for anything in His life. He even stood up one time among the religious scholars of His day and said, if any of you can prove me guilty of sin, do so. And the nation was hushed in silence. Now, you and I couldn't stand up and say that. We've got guilt on us just like the nation of Israel had on them. And the prescribed solution was to face something that was a symbol of sin, to look at it, to acknowledge your sin, and then to trust God for help. Moses took a snake that was the symbol of sin and lifted it up for all Israel to see. God Himself took Jesus and said, He's being killed, crushed, persecuted, penalized for all of the sin that you have done in your life. First for the nation of Israel and then for you Goyim, you Gentiles. And He lifted Him up for all the world to see. That you could identify with the fact that you deserved what He was getting and He didn't deserve it. And it didn't stop there. That's how you got reconciled. That's how your sin got accounted for. That's how all the times that you were rebellious to your parents and deserved to be stoned fell upon Jesus. How all the times that you didn't help your neighbor do something when they needed your help and you deserved to be punished. That's how all the sacrifices that you should have made and didn't make to show that you were contrite and needed to repent fell upon Jesus. He took that for us at the cross. And that's not where it stopped. He also descended into the lower earthly regions, the Scripture said, by going into the grave. He submitted to death because when God said to a man, if you sin, you'll die, Jesus took your sin and the penalty for it, which ultimately was not just crucifixion, it was death upon Himself. Then He got up from it under the power of God and said, if you trust in Me, you can walk in a new life. The Mosaic Law taught about this. It's in our symbols. Its righteous principles are all over our nation. How much more should the church understand it? And if Jesus took all the cursings prescribed in the law upon Himself and yet left you all of the promises, how indebted 
are you? Certainly, you can't live a life of sin now. That would be an insult to the cross of Christ. You have to walk in newness, in freedom, in abundant joy, because that's the life He's called you to. He already took the penalty, the punishment for everything else. You can't get any of it back. When you beat yourself up after sinning, it doesn't do anything to account for the sin. Jesus already did it. We have to set down our old lives and walk in a new life. The reason I baptized Diana in a swimming pool yesterday was to show that that's happened in her life. Whether you got baptized yesterday or not, you need to act as if that has happened in your life. If you haven't been baptized, we need to do that. We need to do it publicly and need to show everybody in the world what's happened. That will hold you accountable to a higher standard, the standard that Christians are supposed to walk. It's like a man wearing a marriage ring shows that you're in covenant. When one won't wear one, there's a problem. When Christians won't be baptized, there's a problem. I've taught you these things today because I want our lives to display wisdom and understanding to the nations. I want our lives to cause people to go, wow, God is with them like nobody I've ever seen. But realize, we inherited this calling by becoming co-heirs with the people that already exist, who God's promises have not failed to, though they linger and that's the nation of Israel. That means you owe them a great debt. There ought not be a day you don't pray for Israel. There ought not be a day that you don't ask God to use you in some kind of way to serve the nation of Israel. That's why we're going to go visit. We're going to go visit there very soon. In June of 2006, anybody who wants to go, we will take because I want you to get this down in your spirit. We're living in a day where God is bringing those people back and now is the time He fulfills His promise to them even as you've tasted of it now. Y'all stand up. Let's pray.